Hello and welcome back to Sister Love. It's yours truly, Red Rainbow, here with a special guest tonight to talk about fat phobia, body dysmorphia, and just body consciousness as a whole. Um, so gear yourself up. It's going to be a really thorough conversation. My guest, oh my gosh, so we go all the way back to the days of graduate school. We both studied community counseling under some of the dopest counselors at the University of West Georgia. Uh, we even shared back-to-back -back offices um, where constantly I was reminded, Corinne, like, be able, my client can hear you. Like, yeah, so we go back to those days. And also, I have to reference, um, this person, you probably heard me on a segment at one point talk about outgrowing things. This is the person who gave me that sage wisdom of, yeah, Coretta, you running back to Atlanta, maybe you've outgrown that. This is that person. So this person that I have with me right now, I call her Dr. Jessica because she does have her PhD. She earned her, her, her doctor crown. Um, and it comes from the research that we're going to talk about tonight. She actually did some deep dives into body consciousness and fat phobia long before a lot of folks that we saw, whether they're A-listers, B-listers, C-listers, started having these conversations long before we saw the salt and pepper biopic where we're starting to see, you know, folks that look like you and me talk about, you know, eating disorders. Like she did this research long before that. Um, and so it's not a contest about who did it first, but the research is out there. And so I want us to hear more about her research, what led her to jump into this research, what has she done with it, where are things going now, and what are some things she thinks we need to know as a community um, in terms of our bodies and how we treat each other. So I'm turning over to Jessica, Dr. Jess. Um, the mic shows Jess. What you got for us? <laughs> What an introduction. Hello, hello. Um, so yeah, I have known Coretta Aretta for, do we want to date it to a good decade? Over a decade, a decade of some Um, We were studying to be counselors together. And uh, since then, I feel like I have just been, I, I will always say my counselor degree is like my most useful degree I've ever earned. Amen. Um, <laughs> I use that, I use that thing. Facts. All the time. I'm like, let me reflect back. Let me paraphrase, you know. Um, but I, I, you know, that time was just such a special time. Um, so moving forward with my, you know, PhD, I very much went into it with that same kind of reflective counselor hat on, I guess, if you will. Um, so you talk about like, how did I end up doing this work? I ended up doing this work because I'm looking in the mirror. I've been, I've been looking in the mirror for two years. <laughs> doing, you know, we actually had to be in therapy in our program. We had to take, you know, certain counseling hours. Um, and then, you know, we do the we did the mock counseling together with like our practice group. So you get a fair amount of like play play therapy and real therapy. Right. I just assume now like I just want to live a therapeutic life. Like this <laughs> is how we both to live. Um, so I just went into my dissertation work kind of with that same vein, uh, same idea, and I'm still doing it. You know, I'm still writing and reflecting and uh, turning the things that I, or the, the messages that I get in the mirror, you know, into my work. I'm still doing the exact same thing I was doing when you met me. Listen, <laughs> listen. Just my, my platform is different and, you know, uh, the things I talk about are slightly different, but it's all the same me. I just use myself as a tool to try to understand healing. And I like offer myself to, I guess the, the group for understanding, you know, I've always been somebody that overshared. I, I journal and I blog and I, you know, just talk about my life. And so, you know, my dissertation work was, uh, 
I was a participant researcher. So I had to do a fair amount of my own self-work and my own examination and my own just like un unlearning and, and get out of my own way and survey my own process. So it was a really kind of a wild time. But that's me in a nutshell. I'm you know, I'm ready to talk about whatever you want to talk about, but um yeah, that's how we got from where we first met to like where I am right now. And people, I want y'all to know it has been a journey. Um, oh, yeah. All the bravery, all the courage, all the vulnerability, all the what people call it, the Brene Brown stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's real. These aren't, I know for some people, it feels like buzzwords. They're not. Um, it's just language oh. to help you express yourself. When you start to do your work, or I call it on my side, um, or what is it? I just told somebody in a meeting, um, I was joking, but I was so serious. I said, go ahead and embrace that. Everybody has a dark side. But when you start to start work on your, what is that word? I can't think of it. In psychology. Yes. Three to four years of shadow work. Oh, it ain't no joke. When you start to deal with the stuff that you've either put aside or there's so much shame you don't want to look at it. Trust me, I, it will slow walk you down like your favorite horror movie, and it'll be waiting right on you when you get through with your shenanigans. Um, <laughs> real life stories. Um, and so with that, I want to dive into, like you said, your research. So what was your research title, um, and how did you go about it? Okay, so uh, my research title was Fat plus black, or no, fat plus women plus leadership, an action research study. Um, and the woman, like the way I spelled out woman, has an asterisk where the E or the A could be. Right. Um, I'm very, like, I, I'm going to say I'm ahead of my time in this, <laughs> but like, I'm very intentional about things and so when you google um like when i went to first google what was there about fat women and leadership that's what i googled you know i literally googled fat plus woman plus leadership and um when you're when you're working as a researcher you learn that you can substitute the asterisk and it'll search for woman singular or women plural Mm. Um, and so I, that was the literal search term, the actual search term that I went. And when I searched, I got nothing. It was like no search results. I reached the end of Google. (laughs) Wait a minute. What? There's nothing. And so I felt like that, that, that's a whole wide open lane for me. So that was the title. And that was also the beginning of, of my research because um, it came to me in a dream. I woke up from a dream one day and I was just thinking about like, what if you, what if you look at, you know, leadership through your body? And I'm thinking that's been done. And I'm thinking about what makes it mine? You know, what makes it, personal, what makes it, uh, you know, reflective, what makes it something that I care about, essentially. Um, and what's interesting about that is because at the time that I was coming up with my research topic, I had a perfectly, I had an award-winning, like, paper that I could have just made into my dissertation research and been done a year earlier. Wow. Um, and... I am just, I'm somebody who I'm very heart centered and I'm a Taurus. So it's very hard to change my mind once my, once my head and my heart are set on something, it's like law. And, um, you know, I was sitting here looking at this perfectly done research that I just finished for our enrollment office and I'm thinking, this could be your dissertation topic. Like, you could just finish. And I was just like, no. And I had this dream about, you know, researching leadership and the body. 
And then when I thought about how I make it mine, I was like, oh, well, then it's got to be fat and it's got to be black. And I didn't inherently say black, but it was interest, interesting that, um, it, so I did a pilot study and I had maybe like 20 participants. Then I did interviews of fat women and I, I did maybe like 60 interviews. Oh, but wow. when it came time to do the group, right, just the group of people that I was going to meet with every day, mm-hmm. everybody that was white dropped out, and the people that I was left with were women of color. So every oh. single person that I got, like the, the you know, in, in my actual research, I tell their story, and I, um, I talk about the things that we talk about in our group. And I share, you know, our processes as fat women kind of diving into our identity and and tearing it apart and redefining it and, you know, that whole process. So those are all women of color. And I remember, you know, during my defense, someone asked me about that. You know, they were like, well, how would it be different if there were white women? I said, I don't know. I invited them and they didn't show up. So you have to ask the white women. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like. It was just, it just was a really interesting byproduct. And it, and I wish, if I had known that was going to be the byproduct, I would have just put it in the title as well. You saw, I almost did. Um, but, but we weren't all black either. We were just all women of color. Right. And so it was really interesting to hear how fat phobia has manifested in Middle Eastern culture, how fat phobia mm. has manifested in um, Latin American culture, how fat phobia has manifested in Caribbean and or Mexican cultures, and it's all different. You know, it's all the same, but it's all different. And so it was really interesting to hear those stories and compare those stories and just kind of uh, lay them against like my own lived experience and, and and understand that like, wow, we aren't even all fat in the same way, right? You know. Um, fatness has different shades and hues and variations and there was just so much we learned I learned about being in community with those other women um, that I'm still learning I still talk to all of them <laughs> so, oh that's amazing um, oh yeah we we stayed in touch uh, on social media so we're I'm in contact with every single one of them That is, oh my God, that is inspiring. And I, but then also cathartic. Like I just like the fact that all of you all obviously built a bond with each other. But then like you're keeping in touch. With, like you have community, as you just said. Like you're in community with each other. Like that's huge. Um, I have my own stories with you know body consciousness, body dysmorphia. Oh my God, um, fat phobia, all those pieces. And it's a very, very, no matter what your size or how you identify, like it's such a nuanced and sensitive topic. Sensitive, when I say sensitive, I mean like prickly. Like I can tell you mine, a lot of mine came from family and friends, like whether it was attitudes about myself or what was reinforced. Or um, the first moment when, and then how unconsciously that replays itself. Like when you say this, whose voice it really is that you're hearing, like all those pieces. And so the fact that y'all still together, that's huge. Like, I love that because we, we need community around, especially around things that you have to deal with a day in and day out. It's like other identifiers that, you don't ask for anybody to intrude or invade your space, but we know, like, when it comes to fat phobia, you can be minding your business, living your best life, and somebody feels like their views of or their narratives uh, deserve to be spewed upon you um, in different platforms. It ain't even old school, like, oh, I'm just gonna say something because I see you walking by, like, you literally could be in any medium space. And have other folks projected onto you, um, consciously or unconsciously. Um, so shout out to y'all still holding community with each other. Thinking about the medium piece, how has it been 
um, just holding space with this work, not necessarily with the community that was a part of your research, but I know like, you know, after you got your research, like you, in my humble, you really put humanity on this topic. Um, whether it was your writings in your blog, whether it was some of your visual representations and some of your social mediums, like, I feel like you brought a lot of humanity in that human, like, let's really be about this topic. How has that journey been for you? Like, how has that evolved from when you first started, I'm going to say, coming out and sharing and sharing your journey? Like, how has that evolved? Um, you know, I am somebody who kind of always felt the need to share. I always felt the need to, like, even when I was little, I would be talking to the audience, like the audience was, like there was an audience there. I love <laughs> I it. Was the only, I was the only child, but I would just be like, I'm talking to the people. My mom was like, who are the people, girl? Like, who are you talking to? <laughs> um, but I just assumed there would be people who needed, who like wanted care, you know, what I was saying. And, um, it wasn't until I, it was 2008, I was actually going through like my first bout of depression. And right before I started graduate school and I started blogging on, online and I was just like writing about how sad I was. <laughs> it was very sad. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was like that the hashtag feature on WordPress. And so I could research, I could look at other people who had tagged, you know, black women healing or black woman sadness and i found um other bloggers other writers other women who were telling their stories about their lives and i just fell in love i still talk to them too like ah. I, I just i you know there's so many people that from like that 08, the, then Twitter in 09 when that first popped off and yes. we all went from like the blog space to Twitter and we could all like talk to each other in real time and it's like, oh my God, I just wrote your blog and da, da, da. And it was just like this time of really ripe community development um, on online at the same time that I just happened to be doing all of this deep personal work, right? And, and then I started grad school. And so then it was like, I'm doing all of this deep personal work all of the time, and it's really cool, and I get to talk about it with other people who think it's really cool. You kind of geek out on self-care and on, you know, wellness. And and so I remember I started another blog while I was in grad school called uh, Black Girl Cry. And I just remember, like, I would go read all these counseling books and read all these, like, different things, these different resources trying to find things about for black women and for, you know, for us telling our stories. And it just became, um, it was very organic, you know, it was just very like, I feel the need to share. And once I find something that works for me, I want to tell everybody because I'm like, it could free so many of us. Like, why would I not want to share it? And it's just a natural, I think black women have been my biggest supporters, my biggest audience, but also my biggest inspiration in my work. Like if anybody else gets something from my work, awesome. But I'm here for black women and black things. And so, you know, I, I and, and, and it's only because I speak from my experience, you know, and I, that's how I identify. So it's like, I'm not trying to exclude other people but I'm saying, because I use myself, I'm not a fiction writer, you know, I don't make up characters, I'm only speaking from Jessica. And because I'm speaking so personally, I, I have to center the black woman, the fat black woman, you know, the fat black queer woman. Um, all of those things that I am are the people that I'm talking to because I'm my, my very first audience member like member you know um and mumble through that but like i'm the first person i'm thinking about when i write is myself and like 
I guess I always want to be talking to myself with kindness and talking to myself with compassion and talking to myself in a way that's loving. And really when I'm writing or when I'm putting out anything, it's like I want to be able to look back on this and feel like, yes, you know, that's right or that inspired me or that gives me something or that was that was good. Um, but I also know that my sharing helps other people so I keep doing it. And it's just been a really organic journey of learning how to best share, what to best share, you know, because I used to write a lot about people in my life, and then I learned that for my life don't necessarily want to be ripped out. It happens. And so, you know, I had to figure out ways to tell stories about me and my relationships without crossing their boundaries or crossing their, uh, you know, uh, you know, not invading their privacy, but betraying trust or anything like that. Right. I didn't want to cross any of those boundaries, but I I also wanted to be able to tell stories that were authentic and it's about things that were happening to me. So I I just, you know, I found, I stumbled through it. It was an imperfect process and I had, you know, my mom get mad sometimes, dad, sisters, whoever, because I wrote something on my blog, but, you know, you work through it. Right, and it kind of forces you to work through it now because it's out there, and you know that you, they fit. You know that you feel this way. The whole world knows you feel this way. It's out there, and so it, it forces you to deal with it. Uh, I never apologize for it. I, I always learn from it, but you know, it's just been trial and error. <laughs> to be honest with you, and that is fair. Jessica, you already walked down the path, but I want us to go a little deeper. When you named um, the different experiences, different women identified folks were having or facing when it comes to fat folks, but you also like walked down your journey a moment ago when you were naming different modifiers or identifiers. Talk to us a little bit about how intersectionality either came up in your research or has come up in some of your like, um, in some of your reflection and writings um, as you've been sharing out in the world? Like, how does intersectionality play a role? Um, it has a huge role. I think one of the reasons that uh, our, our group bonded was because we were women of color and because we have this kind of, like I said, our experiences were the same but different. We had this shared experience of not being, of automatically not being the, the standard of beauty, right? So of, of automatically that is knocked off because you're not white. And then it's automatically knocked off because you're not thin. And so when we shared that, those two kind of, some people would say strikes, we shared those two things together in common. And so I think that gave us a common bond automatically, whether we even were all the same, whether we even would have gotten along, you know, right? Right. It made us feel like we were closer because we were like outsiders in the same way. Um, But I think, you know, for the Black and uh, Latina women hearing about the praise of curves, and butts and hips and thighs and you know it's okay to be thick but thick in a certain specific way and you know how you carry your weight is is matters just as much as as what you weigh and then hearing in um you know in asian culture how it's just complete there's just no space for it right um and so it's like, what you're just a complete outlier um, in some cultures and some, some Asian cultures, and some you're not, you know? And so it's like, um, if you're not seen as marriage, marriageable, is it marriable, marriable? If you're not seen as desirable, then, um, you know, you're kind of like the outcast in your family. Mm. And so it was all of these ways that we were wrestling with unworthiness or mm-hmm. someone else telling us 
that we weren't good enough because of some identity that we had. That's what we all had in common. Right. But what it looked like was very different depending on how all of our intersections landed, Mm -hmm. right? Um, I think something that was very interesting that came out of my research and in my own life was the queer piece. Uh, A lot of people talked about feeling at home in queer spaces. Mm, Yes. And and I was like, that's so interesting to me. At the time, um, I, I don't know how I identified sexually at the time. I probably just in the same way I do now, which is just queer. Right. Um, and it's like, I don't know what that means. I just know that, that like, I belong in the family with the rainbow. That's just all I know. And so, um, for me then, I was like, this is so curious. But I do know, you know, when I go home to Hillcrest, you know, my body isn't a thing. I don't feel like it's a thing. My body is praised. People think I'm beautiful. People will come up to me and I'll get the gas. And, you know, I get to be big, bold, beautiful, all of those things. Versus when I go out to downtown, where it's a majority straight white crowd, mm. I could go completely unnoticed. You know what I mean? And so it, it was just this really interesting piece about feeling and being seen in queer spaces. And I still, that's that's something that I wanted to do and explore more, do more research on, explore more about why is it that fat women are allowed to show up and be seen in queer spaces. Um, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if it's because it's another one of those things where it's like, you're different. I'm different too. Let's be different together. You know, I don't know if it's as simple as that or if it's something deeper. Right. But I do know that in a lot of my research, I came up over and over again of fat women finding, like, having the gay best friend going out to the gay bars, the gay clubs, Mm -hmm. and dancing and feeling like they were comfortable there. Um, Being at home in queer spaces, having, you know, it was just over and over and over again that showed up. And um, and I was like, this can't be coincidental. This can't be happenstance or something there. So um, the intersections piece played a huge thing. And then, you know, age was another thing. Mm. the generational piece around um, body acceptance and and growing up in the time of the body positive movement versus I had participants that were slightly older and have they had very different messaging around their body and very you know, they grew up with very different you know and, and I don't even think we grew up in a body positive group like we did. I would say my youngest sister you know she's seventeen and she probably she not 17 but like when she was 17 she was talking about body positivity you know right we were i wasn't at 17 but i think um it's more now it's the thing right mm-hmm. whereas as an adult or even at in young adulthood for some of my other participants it was not a thing it was very much still diet culture mm-hmm. um yes. very much still skinny and so, you know, it's really interesting how, like, eight years or ten years, there's a huge shift mm-hmm. in um, how we look at beauty and how we look at beauty standards. And then, in turn, like, the messages that we ingest throughout our bodies. Um, but I feel like we kind of came of age with the body positive movement. I agree wholeheartedly. I think the body positivity and just consciousness movement, I think for older millennials and definitely Gen Xers, I think a lot of our healing was able to shape or take shape um, around that period because that was also the period that we started talking about you being vulnerability in life and it's okay to actually talk about things that you struggle with. And it's okay that you don't fit in. Um, And so we will pick up 
with part two with body positivity and some of the coming of age pieces. Hello and welcome back to Sister Love. This is Red Rainbow. I've got my honored guest, Dr. Jess or Jessica, um, however you want to reference. We are starting segment two. We just had a wonderful conversation about fat phobia, body consciousness, body acceptance, um, intersectionality, um, and then just what it means to own who you are, and then a little bit about um, their research. We're going to pick back up with the body consciousness and body positivity. Again, depending on your journey, um, some of this could or could not be triggering for you. So if you need to take a, take a minute, take a pause, do so, um, and join the conversation back in when you're comfortable. So Jessica, I'm going to turn it back over to you. You were literally naming something critical about the age distinction in intersectionality. And depending on what generation you fall in, not as a limit or a, or a construct limit, but the messaging around your body and what's acceptable and all that social construct yuckiness, like it really has an impact. And you mentioned how like your youngest sibling probably came in at the heart of that consciousness movement and self-acceptance versus, you know, we came in at that diet culture. So, you know, what do you think was like the biggest impact when it comes to diet culture and then just, its impact on fat phobia and, and body acceptance. Well, you know, um, what I found out from my research really, I mean, this will make sense when I say it, but <clears throat> the biggest influence was actually the women in your life, specifically mothers and aunts. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, the biggest influence in their life was the world. Because they're social circles, right? Mm, yes. And so it's almost like it's like it doesn't even matter what the messages were for kids. It matters what the messages were in media, I mean. Right. What the messages were for our parents because our parents or our caretakers were the ones that we were looking at and relying on for cues and, uh, and, and, and understanding around our bodies. And I mean this from like the very earliest of ages, right? Um, and then by the time you get to preteen, of course, you're getting into tweens. Mm-hmm. You're getting messages from your peers and, you know, your hormonal and all those things like the It's a little bit different there, but I think even then, um, my participants and even myself, if we had had strong relationships and strong body signal when we were young, we went through puberty differently. Right. You know? And so it's like, for me, I, it helps me to be mindful. Like, I never, right? I have kids, I never want to shame my body around my kids. I never want to talk about my body in a negative way around my kids because they pick that up mm-hmm. so much and so quickly you don't even realize it. And, um, and it gets internalized, you know? And those messages are very hard to change because they're buried so deeply and they, they come from so many different places. Like I said, moms and aunts, and I, I would have thought, I guess again, it makes sense when you think about it, I would have thought like mom or grandmother, but the grandmother or grandparent, I think, I think it's too, and again, I'm saying women, so right. they're looking at their same sex or same gender, uh, caretaker, but the grandmother, I think, was, was was almost always too far of a generational gap, right? It's like your parents, they don't know what they're talking about, but your parents and your aunts and your tias or your aunties, those were the women who were most in your life telling you about what it was to be a woman. And so um, it was really interesting to me to then go talk to and interview my mom and my aunt and talk about our body mm-hmm. and talk about the messages that we got, you know, that I got from them and um, that they got from uh, other people when they were my age and when they were younger. And so, you know, I never got an opportunity or I never 
main space was like that kind of opportunity with my family before, but it was a really interesting time to go through and just like talk about our bodies and our body conversations. Like, how do we formulate these ideas about ourselves? Do we even believe this shit? Like, what? Do we this? Um, so, yeah, it was really cool to hear and to just feel empowered because what ended up happening was you have those conversations and you realize, and I carried all this negative shit about my body, but like, look at all the things I've been able to do. Right. While I've been carrying all this negative shit about my body. And so as you start thinking about it, you start reflecting, you're like, if I was able to be any kind of successful, hating myself, what would happen if I loved myself? Oh what would happen gosh. if I just didn't hate myself? You know what I mean? Like, this start with not hating yourself, but, and then, like, you get to that point, it's like, what would happen if I loved myself? Like, mm. no matter what I was like. So, yeah, it was it was a really, really beautiful time of research and it just opened up uh, areas for those kinds of conversations in my life to continue because really I've continued to just have those kinds of intimate talks with people um, since my research time. I, I, I always act like I'm a researcher. <laughs> like working on a story, um, if people want to talk to me, I will go deep. And so, uh, you know, the interrelation of peace was interesting, but I think just the one, the one generation above us was the one that was the most influential. And I think it's just such a lesson for parents, especially, to just, the best thing you can do for your food is to love yourself. You know, and loving yourself is such a model. It's such an important thing for your kids to see how to love themselves and how to take care of themselves and how to prioritize themselves and how to um, let themselves feel and let themselves breathe. You have to show your, your kid how to be human. And so I think that's the very best thing that parents can do. And that's really one of the things that I... I take away from my research now, like five years removed from it, um, which that I, I probably wouldn't have digested in the same way then, you know, but that relationship was really key, that parental relationship. That is so huge. I, one, I just love the fact that you made the conscious effort to sit down and have that multi-generational conversation with the women in your life who had the most influence on how you perceived um, your body and just bodies, period. Um, that is so huge because, yeah, it shows you, like, one, it shows you where other folks have, have either come from or where things originated. But then also, like, it helps you remap some of your stories and understand where you may have picked things up um, that may be lying unconscious. Um, all the things, because as you were sharing it, like I literally went through memory lane um, as you were talking about your family and the research, you know, I went to, when's the first time um, I started struggling with body and it was early on, but it, some of it was conscious, some was unconscious. There, I remember I was a little girl, I was always a little bit bigger than everybody else. But when you look back, you realize I wasn't that. I was just bigger than everybody else. Like I was taller. I had my growth spurt first. But I remember like I have this one aunt. Everybody gets on her because she has this jealousy thing where she kind of cuts her eyes and she look at you because she's got to be the center of attention. We'll talk about narcissism on another topic. Um, but like, you know, I'm like seven or eight. I don't pay any mind. But I learned about body because... I remember we would eat ice cream and she'd be like, yeah, we got to slow up on the ice cream because, you know, we don't want to, you know, whatever, whatever we had to say. You have to understand, my aunts that I call the aunts, one, they're my mom's side of the family. These women are vivacious. They're gorgeous. They were showstoppers and still are. Like, literally, they were coming from Michigan and everybody, either that from the neighborhood, they went to school with, whomever, like, I would watch these people jock and kill themselves to be in the presence of my aunts. 
And so me and my mom, we call them the glamour girls or whatever. Like all the women of my mom's family are gorgeous. Grandma, you did a good job. Um, even though you're not with us anymore. Um, I hope we're doing you proud. But like I learned by the way that they carried themselves, like they didn't, it didn't stop anything that had. If nothing else, I thought they were gorgeous because of it. Like I had, like I just never saw it slow them down. But but there was this one aunt, again, I now hear it now, but I also heard it like, so I was a little bit chubby, but not that. But then when I got back from overseas, I had like, I just started doing all these sit-ups because embarrassing one time in PE, I didn't know what a sit-up was. I never had to do one. I knew what a push-up was. I was so angry. I went and learned how to do sit-ups on my own, and then I would do them obsessively. And in doing that, I dropped like, like a lot of weight. Like and basically what it was is I toned up. I was already having a growth spurt and then I just toned. And so when I got back, you know me, I still don't know the difference because I'm still me and I'm still young and I'm probably 10 when I get back. Her reaction showed me what was acceptable. Oh my gosh, all that baby fat gone, all that. Oh, it was baby fat at seven? Right. I hear you, lady. Or it's at nine, right? Like when my mom says something about, I'm grabbing my arms because that's a separate conversation. Oh, because there's something that she has um, concerning her. She's always had concerns of her own with her own body when you talk about the parent piece, but then they got projected to me. So like she's smaller chested. I'm the person in the family that has a large chest of all the women in my immediate family. But, like, at age nine, I'm hearing from my mom, like, she literally just kind of had a gross response. You know, I, I think I was got out of bath and I'm getting ready and she happened to walk in the bathroom. And it's just one of those, at nine years old, no nine-year-old has asked their parents to walk in and have, like, a grotesque response to their forming breasts. And so, but then, like, right, but then, like, at 27, 28, when I'm trying to figure out, like, why do I feel a way? about having large breasts. Like most of my 20s, I was fine, but my late 20s, that's when the body's dysmorphia really started to, you know, take root. But it's like, oh, when you start to slow down and do the reflection, like you have somebody tell you early on, like your your breasts were a problem because they had issues with their breasts. And then how dare you have the opposite issue of the breast issue, right? Like, right, like what happens, the spinach that happens when you don't self-regulate yourself and your expectations and your needs, right? You end up harming other people or the same person. You know, I'm not even 30 years old, but in this moment, I'm, I'm grabbing at my arms because this is one of my most vulnerable areas. I call it, I have my grandma's arms. My arms are huge. I've always had muscular arms, but when they stop being toned, it's like, oh, okay. Yep, pieces of the body. And I remember when Baby Fat was jumping, there was this gorgeous dress at Macy's. And I was like, I might try this on. You know, trying to push yourself. Because you all have to understand as an audience, and I know I'm in, in share bear time, but I'm saying this for a reason. Because it's people don't understand, some of us understand, but everybody doesn't understand how important the parenting, the messages, conscious and unconscious, the verbiage, all that stuff linger. It lingers longer than the self-help stuff and the love yourself stuff. Like it rips people apart because if you notice, and I'm starting to talk about parts of the body. Well, by the time I was 30, I, that's all I saw myself was in part. So at this point, I had started picking up weight because I was taking steroid medicine for allergies and all this other stuff. So I'm slowly not looking like the person that I looked like in undergrad. Um, I'm no longer what we call socially um, constructive, uh, thick in all the right areas. Now I'm just thick. And it's like, ooh, wait a minute, hold on. I had made peace with this transition. I didn't even know all this is happening, right? But then it got to a point I'm already like stopped looking at myself in mirrors. Like when I'm in public, it's like I couldn't look at myself in the mirror. And so this is the same day, like I just happened to be like, push yourself. That dress is cute. So what is sleepless? You may love it. You may look good at it. Try it on. Until I have my mom's like, oh, you sure you want to wear that? And I must have been on one. Because I literally said, so why? I said, you scared I'm going to have my arms out? 
well, yeah, I mean, and I was just like, you know what? I said, I said nothing. I'm trying to deal with my arms being out. But it don't help when you got somebody as ignorant as you that can't be okay because my arms are out. And, and I mean, yes, I stunned my mom in the store. She just sitting there looking at me. What, what, what can you say? But I also know, like, I don't hate my mom for that. I will never hate my mom for that. She just comes from a deficit place. She is a very... Right. Self-loathing, self-hatred, self-deficit. And it was stuff that was done to her. Like, she's always been thinner than everybody else. But it wouldn't matter. Because if you don't feel good about yourself, it don't matter what. Thick, thin, none of that. And all that stuff is social constructs anyway. It's just another way of people piecing each other. Almost like, kind of like slavery. It's almost people identifying how they're going to put the work on you. So whether it's your teeth, your behind, your face. Because around that period of time, I also had my whole life. But especially then, Black community I'm talking to is really about this. Especially men identify folks. I'm talking about my cisgender men. Y'all love to holler at people. Not all. Oh, you know, you gorgeous. Or, you know, your face is... Yeah. I'm so glad I worked past that. Don't tell people that certain parts of their body is banging in other parts. Who are you? Who are you? Don't do that to people. Because now you've got, you know, and then it's enough that, you know, you mentioned the dieting and the influences of the tweens. And I say all that to get around to, like, you know, at the height of the my, you know, dysmorphia when it's worse, it's like I would take pictures of going out and I have in my head I look eight. But then if I saw a picture and it wasn't what I thought, I would start circling what was wrong. Like, oh, this is a problem area in red. This is a, almost like I was a magazine editor. Like, we're going to have to airbrush this out because I was also. Yes, because I was the generation that. The highlight was either going to get a Coke before school and grabbing the latest magazine, fashion magazine, all these pieces. Um, for those that want to dig deeper, like there's tons of research and topics about, you know, the fact that not as much today, but it still does happen that sometimes in modeling and what gets put in some of our publications, how whole women's bodies aren't always put in. like. Sometimes they'll chop the head off or they'll only show the arms or they'll show this part, right? Well, that's a lot of unconscious like pieces that you're putting there subliminally, uh, whether you mean to or not, but that's a topic for another day. But I'm just, again, relating why this topic is so important. Just in the span of Jessica talking through that generational piece, all those memories came up for me. All those memories came up. And it's stuff that we have to make peace with and live through, but also like the unlearning, you know, as we start to pivot the conversation, some folks are at a place where they can do their work and they can unlearn. Some folks are going to take some of this stuff with them to the grave because it just is what it is and that's unfortunate. But there's so much unnecessary harm out here either because of how you view yourself and then the need to project or the need to have misery, you know, misery likes company. Like, yeah, some of y'all got books and podcasts on that. Um, but I invited Jessica on here because there's just so many nuances. And that's why I say it's not all of any type of group that does X or Y or Z. But so many times we don't understand when we glorify, um, you mentioned, um, I think with some of our Latin friends, um, it's okay to be thick here, but not here. When you tell people that, what are they supposed to do with their body? Right, or, you know, for me, heavy chest, wide shoulders, which I finally learned, it's an inverted frame. Like there's about eight body types and most people are a variation of that. And you and when I read, I was like, oh, yeah, I got the chokes that. Oh, so if this comes, like, if this is the thing, like, why don't we just respect, like, we look different. Like, everybody's, excuse me, not going to be thick. Everybody doesn't have a big duke or big butt, depending on how you reference it. 
Some people have thick thighs, some people don't, some people have in-between, some people have creases, folds, whatever. Okay, that's what they come with. That's what their packaging comes with. Why we can't just love people's packages and keep it moving? Or if you can't love the package, just keep it moving. I think we got to unlearn the need to manage other people's packages. But that, too, is a whole other story for a whole other broadcast. So I'm going to get back on topic, but I really wanted to. <laughs> I, I, I felt that. I wanted to take that moment to, and I will accept that was a little bit of a dump, but I needed to for myself and for the audience. We cannot ignore what fat phobia and body projection, all this, this, most of this stuff is all social constructs. There is no, who wrote the book on what a body should look like? It's no different than the fact that somebody sells a watch for a thousand dollars. Who told you that had to be done? Okay, you set the price, and somebody was like, "Ooh, that makes me feel worthy, so I'm just gonna buy it for a thousand dollars." And that's how we started, like you know, spending money like that on things because it gives us a sense of worth. Some people, not all, it's no different than with bodies. A lot of this stuff is language and constructs that somebody, somebody determined that we're gonna use the reference and we can't hang our hats on that. Um, because when we don't honor the fact that our bodies have lived through and probably kept us through so much, hey, um, that's a sermon in itself. But then B, your body is your greatest asset. Like your body is what protects the things on the inside, your heart that you love with, your mind that you think with, like, your body frame is what's protecting that. And so as we wrestle to make peace with that, we're adding layers of stress and emotional distress and just a lot of harm because of what we're taking in, what we're filtering in. So yeah, let's pivot to the unlearn. Like, you know, when we're talking about the consciousness and the acceptance and where things came from, like, what do you think unlearning looks like for different generations or different people from different walks of life? Like, what do you think the unlearning is? You know, um, I think the messages that we learn, we unlearn vary depending on the generation, but I think the work is the same. Yes. And what I mean by that is that, you know, everybody Everybody, depending on when they were born, was given different messages about what is good, what is bad, what is acceptable, what is not acceptable, all those things. <clears throat> and our work, all of our work, is to decide whether that message is one that is in service for us. Right. Whether that message is, a, is one that we want to continue to. Um, abide by one that we want to continue to run our lives by one that we want to continue to uphold and so you know it's whether it's my grandmother deciding you know whether to wear pants to church or it's me deciding whether to pierce my septum you know what I mean like it's right. a very different thing but we're both deciding what's how do we communicate respect, but also how do I express myself, right? And how do I how do I dress for this occasion and make this appropriate while also um, expressing my individuality and my, my own sense of style? So I think, you know, we all have different work, but the same work in the, that the unlearning has to do with deciding what of, what of these outside messages do we keep and what what do we say is ours, and what are we? What are we gonna continue to to govern our lives by? Right. So, what gets to become and stay a core value, and what gets to be let go and say, you know, you're no longer in service of, of me anymore. You're no longer serving me anymore, and so I can let this go now. So, I think that's really what the unlearning is. What the unlearning looks like. 
even though it'll look different across generations, it's still going to be this process of discernment that starts and ends with the self. I love that. And I really like how you pulled that word service and what's serving you, but then also delineating. Um, you know, I'm going back to counseling. What's your shit versus what's my shit? Um, that was my favorite thing we learned um, for counseling supervision. And that that was explicitly, you know, sometimes they wouldn't say it or if it's bad that we all said it. But really, like, what's my bag versus yours? Like, we all can't be at the bus stop saying Erica Badu's bag lady. Um, let me grab these two because this is mine, but I noticed that you got about five over here. I'm going to let you decide if you're going to take them with you, recycle them, discard them, or give them the goodwill on you, what you want to do. Um, but I, I love that reminder of everything doesn't serve you. And you do have options. You do have a choice. You do get to decide, you know, at this juncture that you're listening to this podcast, whether you're on your own or sharing a space with somebody, you know, that maybe intrudes your space with some of these things, you still have options. Um, nobody can control your thoughts. Nobody can control your heart. You have options, no matter what the outside may look like. So I really appreciate um, the direction of our, our work, our self-work. Um, with that, my final question is, what does advocacy look like, whether it's for self or others in relationship to body acceptance? Um, what's the advocacy work that you think that's still needed? Anybody can ever do for me is my tradition. 
And I don't mean it in a dismissive way. It's <laughs> like, but really, mind your business. Take care of you. Yes. Honor you. Love you. Because if you take care of you, I promise I will love you better. I, I promise. <laughs> you know, so it's like, 